This is the Darcy Drill Podcast, episode 23. Today, my guest is Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. And among other things, we're going to be talking about the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. Jacques Boudreau, what is this, like the fifth time we've done this? Something like that. Yeah, fourth or fifth, I think. Well, welcome back. Thank you. I've taken a hiatus again from podcasting um, just because of some personal stuff going on, but glad you were available to kick off the I guess it's it's like running a new season of the Darcy Jerome podcast. We took a break and now we're starting a new season. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what's what's new? What's new in Jacques Boudreau land? Well, um, you know, some from a a political point of view, um, I'm spending some time listening uh, and and viewing analysis of the um, inquiry or whatever it's called into the Emergencies Act that has proven to be very interesting and you know we, we now live in a world where uh, judges take a very um, well an activist role which is very unfortunate uh, to me because now they're not they're not satisfied to do their work, which is to interpret the law as it's written. There's a lot of decisions now that, that are made these days where basically they suspend what the law says and go with what they think the law ought to say. Now, I don't want to... Uh, I, I certainly hope that um, Rouleau, the, uh, the commissioners, is going to act in a in an honest fashion, even though he was nominated by the liberals but the pattern over the last few years you know has me fearing that he's going to side with the government which i'm, I'm not a lawyer but my goodness i i've been listening to the testimony and you know the politician mandacino for example had repeatedly said that he you know the emergencies act was called because the police force act uh, basically asked for it, when in fact, by now we've had um, the OPP, the, the police of uh, Ottawa police, um, other police forces all saying, look, we, we never asked for this. And they you know, demonstrated, for example, that the blockade in Windsor was basically done away with without the Emergencies Act being um, in effect. So, I mean, ever seems to indicate, every every testimonies seem to indicate that it was not necessary. And yet, you know, I hope I'm right. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I fear that he's going to come out and somehow, again, maybe make the, the app say what he wants it to, to, to say as opposed to what it actually says. You know, yesterday Frieden was testifying and um, it's, it's pretty embarrassing as far as I'm concerned. You know, some of the stuff that she was saying where at one point, she went on a 13-minute monologue where she brought in Russia and to, to a question that had nothing to do with that. So, 
you know, she's all over the place. She's, she, I don't know, she's trying to swamp people with arguments that are completely irrelevant. But like on balance, I think it's, it's showing that the government had no justification to call the act. And we can only hope that the commissioner is going to rule in that fashion and, you know, make it very, very difficult for future governments to prevent people from uh, protesting. Yeah. Well, it's it's a case of. Uh, well, first of all, that with Freeland, she looks like an absolute imbecile. The amount of times I watched her trip on her words and uh, change the subject and not answer the question, uh, like you say, it is embarrassing. The, but at the end of the day, this is a case of the state um, questioning the state, or it's 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 the it's a question of the government. Um, you know, trying to protect themselves at, you know, this inquiry is, is from what I can tell, it is all for show. I won't be one bit surprised if the commissioner comes out in favor of the government, because uh, you can't expect the government to hold themselves accountable. No, I mean, there are things that are very problematic. For example, the you know, I think she was saying, well, I'm not a lawyer and we relied on expert advice. And then when you say, well, could we see that? Then they take refuge behind um, confidentiality, I believe. Well, like the, you, you really have to wonder what is it that they're trying to hide? Because it, like if it's a straightforward legal advice, I mean, surely they, they should be able to share it, right? So you, you wonder. Because now, you know, they're basically saying, well, you know, trust us. We, we got legal advice and he told us it was okay. I mean, I, you know, in different fields in my work, I mean, I, I have seen many, many times people, um, you know, coming with different interpretation, right? And, and these people could be perfectly honest. I mean, sometimes things are written in such a way that, you know, there, there's room for for um, interpretation. So it, it doesn't mean because you find somebody that, in fact, it could be one out of a hundred that has that view, right? Then ninety nine percent of lawyers would would disagree, but they 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 sort of cling on to the one that supports their point of view, which I don't think is is um, acceptable. Hmm. Yeah. Sure. I I guess like. If the if the politics were reversed in this scenario, um, I you know I wonder what that would that would look like also because I mean especially when it comes to uh, interpreting the law or interpreting the justification around a uh, the the invocation of the Emergencies Act because. Say we had a conservative government in place. Say we had a, um, a predominantly progressive liberal protest that overtook most of um, Ottawa. Now, what would what would these this uh, inquiry into the Emergencies Act look like then? I'm curious, right? I mean, because. What we're seeing, again, what we're seeing the mainstream media report compared to if you watch the actual footage is completely, 
completely different, right? Well, I agree, and I'll give you an example. So, first, we, we do have to make the distinction between the blockade in Windsor, which were stopping a great deal of trade, which there you could make a, a case that, and in fact, I, you know, let, let me actually repeat to make sure people understand, right? I mean, in terms of support or not supporting what people do, I always apply the non-aggression principle, right? I mean, if your protest is putting someone out of a job, which again, going back to Windsor was the case with some auto workers, right? If an auto worker is put out of a job, at least temporarily, because the parts are not making their way through, I don't think that's proper, right? I mean, this is a case where you are now hurting somebody else who's innocent. However, when people were making the point, as I think as Freeland and some other people have said, that the convoy in Ottawa was hurting the Canadian economy, that's a stretch that is completely far-fetched, right? I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. This was not impeding trade. I mean, this just making stuff up, right? So I want to make the distinction between the two of them. But to your point, we've had, in fact, just prior to COVID, we've had railway blockades, which were impeding a lot of movement of goods. I don't recall Trudeau or Freeland, you know, <laughs> making a case that the economy was being hurt and these people were not, right? There was none of that, right? So, so again, and those people, of course, were more of their liking, right? That they, they were not, uh, apparently they were not a fringe uh, movement who held unacceptable opinion. Mm-hmm. So, again, the way they treat these things is never based on the action itself, but it's by it's who's doing it, right? If, it, if it's a good guy who's doing something that would otherwise be bad if it were done by a conservative, well, you know, that, that's okay. I mean, I, I just don't understand or subscribe to this type of thinking. You, you ought to judge an action by the action itself. The person who's doing it, whether you like them or not, is completely irrelevant. But, I mean, that type of thinking is completely foreign to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of... A lot of thinking in general seems to be completely foreign to them, in my opinion. Um, so the other thing about this Emergencies Act inquiry, what it, what is with all the like Orwellian black backdrops that it, that we're seeing? Like you know, when you're watching the video footage of it, it's just like a, the silhouette, a lighted silhouette of a person in front of a black backdrop, and it seems like. Uh, something out of an Orwellian uh, death panel trial or something bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is odd. It is yeah. odd. Yeah. Um, let's see. So the other thing that we were talking about earlier was this, uh, there's this advocacy from again, state actors on some sort of, uh, digital currency, maybe some sort of cryptocurrency that is that we're going to start using potentially worldwide, and they're going to be able to track, uh, you know, our carbon footprint, potentially restrict our travel, uh, you know, potentially include things like vaccination status, uh, to restrict spending money, um, 
And there was another thing they were going to add into that also. Uh, well, so, so I guess it would be something similar to like the social credit score that we had that we see in in China. The, all this stuff would kind of be tied to our finances, and they'd be able to restrict that sort of stuff based on it. Can you give us uh, your opinion on that stuff? Yeah. So this is very very frightening because, and I don't, you know, I don't want to. I mean. I, First of all, I wouldn't want to call it a, a conspiracy theory because some of these people are, you know, they're out in the open, right? They make no bones about this. But this is such a an attack on our freedom. I mean, these are people who have appointed themselves as um, rulers of what we can or cannot do. I mean, there once upon a time, I mean, people, you know, treasured freedom. And now there's, there's a, certainly a, a small number of, of self-appointed elite who believe that they know better. So, you know, to, to confirm, I mean, these people are thinking of pushing forward some kind of digital currency that would monitor one's carbon footprint. And you could find, you know, when you get to the end of the year, and if you, you know, if you live in, in Manitoba or Saskatchewan and November sets in and you're tired of the cold and you want to go to Arizona, um, you know, they tally up the number and suddenly it's like, well, no, you're, you're not allowed to transact to buy your tickets to go to Arizona. I mean, this is the type of thing that they're after. Or if you buy too much gas in the course of the year, I guess, you know, you, you might come to September and suddenly, well, you know, your, your account is frozen because he, I mean, this, this is what these people want. And, like it, it is absolutely shocking that people are, 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 I don't know if they're full of themselves or whatever, but I mean, I, we have to push back and make it clear that these are complete non-starters. I mean, people ought to be able to live their lives as they see fit, as long as they don't hurt others. I mean, it's as simple as that. And um, like this complete control that these people want over what we do is like, I mean, talk about a, a, massive, a massive loss of privacy when people basically know how you spend your money. I mean, it's not their business. So it, these are very, very sort of frightening possible development. And I can only hope that, you know, what's happening in Europe is, is going to make people realize. I mean, as an aside, I, I, I was listening to someone recently who said that, um, People in Europe are now finding out that engaging in, in virtue signaling actually has a cost, and which is true, right? Because I think there's a lot of people who simply don't know any better, right? They, they, they agreed. Uh, I mean, there, there are elements that, again, these self-ascribed elites want to do that sound good. And people go along because it allows them to, again, engage in virtue signaling. But now they're finding out that when you shut down nuclear reactors and other sources of energy, and that you're going to go through a winter where it's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, Germany, of all places, is building warming centers, right? And there are now, I understand, all kinds of limits in terms of uh, thermostat settings and I mean, I, I read somewhere there was going to be 16 degrees. I mean, 16 degrees is not very comfortable. So anyway, 
I think people are now realizing that, hang on for a minute, we, we do need energy in order to heat our homes and, and you know, to turn over to someone this, this idea that, no, you know, we are late November, you've used your quarter for the year, and now you can go the rest of the winter without heat. It's, it's just unfathomable. So, yeah, these are, are these are things that we have to keep uh, foremost because we have to fight back every opportunity we get. Um, I mean, it's a bit like it's a different sort of element, but, you know, just yesterday, the, the, the liberals now want to include in their firearms restriction a large swath of hunting rifles. So... And, and you know, and this is a this is another one where I simply do not understand the way these people think. Right now, they want to increase massively the number of weapons that will be restricted, even though some of them are are simply hunting rifles. But if you look, they have recently removed mandatory sentencing for people who commit crimes with guns. I mean, it, it just seems to be so inconsistent that. You are extremely harsh in terms of what people can own, but if you have them, particularly if you have illegal guns, then you get almost a slap on the wrist. Yeah, I, I mean, it, to me, it is completely inconsistency, uh, inconsistent, and I don't understand again what their thinking is. Well, I, you know, my and I'm not that familiar with this, but I did look into it a little bit, and I it, it did seem to me that a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, where they were removing charges for um, these these so-called crimes with weapons. A lot of them were just uh, like nonviolent crimes. They weren't like violent crimes with a weapon. They were like possession of this illegal weapon, right? So, um, which again, if if that's the case, and I like I say, I'm no expert on it. I just looked briefly into some of the documents coming out of the government. But if that's the case, I actually have no no opposition to that. Um, the other thing is, you know, with but this, let, let me go ahead. Let, let me share a personal experience. I, I don't know if I've made it public in the past, but um, we just went through the. I think it was the twelfth anniversary of uh, a guy who basically tried to kill my neighbor. Um, with a Magnum 357, my my neighbor was running away from him, and my house became a backdrop to his shooting. I discharged his weapon four times. Two of the bullets went through my house, and one of them missed my youngest daughter by about ten minutes, like ten minutes before she was in her bedroom. Um, Fortunately, she was in the kitchen when that bullet went through. But so this is a, an attempted murder in addition to putting my family at risk. Guess how long the guy went to jail for that? Oh, I. Yeah, it, it'll it'll be terrible. The uh, the duration will be so disappointing. Four years. Yeah. Yeah. Four years for attempting to kill somebody and putting a completely innocent bomb. Not that my neighbor was not innocent. He was. Um, but he attempted to kill him, put my family at risk, and went to jail for four years. Hmm. Completely unacceptable. 
And, you know, if the liberals are serious, then, I mean, you know, there, there are three elements to putting people in jail. One is punishment. Two is deterrent. You know, basically sending a message to people, say, if you do this, you're going to go to jail for a long time. And and third one, of course, is protection to the public, right? If, if somebody is a danger, well, you want to segregate him from society, right? Those are the three elements. And the, the deterrent component, when you only have four years for attempting to kill somebody, is, is I mean, totally inadequate. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Oh, for so, sure. Well, and, and not to mention uh, zero restitution to the to the victims of his actions, right? I mean, yeah, you know. Um, okay, so let's see. You exciting news? You have a new Substack. Um, let's talk about that. Yes, I just yeah, I just created an account. I'm about to put my first article. I, I think there will be two articles that will be uh, published fairly quickly, uh, in part because they were in my uh, my library, as it were. And But then I, I, I'm going to try to, to put something up uh, on a weekly basis to, to discuss uh, different elements. The first one will be to describe to people how um, in spite of its name, employment insurance is, has nothing to do with insurance. Uh, the second one will be on unfunded liabilities, something that we've discussed before. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about this article. I, I don't um, if you're okay talking about it. If it's not going to put out too many spoilers about the article, because this is a conversation I have lots with the guys I work with. You know, um, they it wasn't that long ago, like when I entered the workforce that employment insurance was, you know, something that was very uncomfortable for a person to take. It was something that was stigmatized in a way that, uh, um, you know, you would, you know, the reality is you should, if you're laid off, you should be out looking for a job. You shouldn't be on the dole. Right. So, um, that's all changed, and like you say, it's not actual insurance. It's from what I can tell, it's just a welfare program. Um, so, yeah, tell us about tell us about your article. Okay, well, without getting into because I think it's best to read it. But okay. there are seven there are seven components that are necessary in order for uh, a scheme or a program to be called insurance. Yeah, and again. And just so the listeners know, you know a little bit about insurance, given your work as an actuary, correct? <laughs> That's correct, right? <laughs> I mean, this, this is the type of stuff that an actuary ought to know, right? What constitutes an insurance program? So people will be able to read the description, but there are seven elements, and I demonstrate that employment, again, we'll, we'll call it for what they call it, but employment insurance fails three or four of the seven components. I mean, you know, like if you fail one, maybe you, you can argue that the other six are so important that, you know, it, but so, but my point is about half of the components are missing, which means that this is not an insurance program at all. But there are all kinds of, uh, one, one, one of the things I ask in the article is, well, if it's not an insurance program, why is it called that? And there are two 
two possibilities that come to mind. One is that the politicians, of course, didn't do their homework, which I see all the time. I mean, it is just astonishing how these slap things together without doing their homework. So that's possible. The other one is they knew that it was not an insurance program, but it calls it that because it gives a veneer of respectability, right? I mean, what happens is that, and I'm certainly not blaming the person out there who's using it because they believe, not knowing any better, that what they've been told is true. But if you do believe that it's an insurance program because that's what the government calls it, then when it comes time to taking your benefits, you know, people will have this attitude that, well, I'm entitled to these benefits, I've paid my premiums. Now, I one of the things I point out is that insurance, you should never have an expectation of gain. And, and maybe I'll limit myself at, at that argument, but an insurance is supposed to make you whole in terms like you're, you're no better off, like you're no worse off than you were before, but you're not better off. So for example, if you buy life insurance, as income replacement, say that you're the, the breadwinner of the family, right? And you were to have an untimely death. Well, what's the purpose of insurance? The purpose of insurance is to represent the present value of all the future earnings so that your family is not any, from the financial point of view, is not any worse off than uh, because you died. Okay. So that's, but you're not better off. Like it's, it's suddenly, it's not, um, you know, that you have twice as much the present value of future earnings, right? Because of course, insurance companies are always on the lookout for inducement for people to act inappropriately, right? Because if you, if, if insurance becomes sort of a gamble, you know, where, where you go to bed at night and think, oh, gee whiz, I sure hope dad's going to die because I'm going to be better off, right? Th that, that, that's not what you want. You, you want this kind of be, to be neutral. But there's a lot of elements in terms of seasonal work where people, the, the premiums they pay pale in comparison to the benefits they receive, right? So, so that right off the bat. But it's interesting when you list, when you read the history of the way things used to work prior to employment insurance. Like, for example, one common argument people will say is that, well, without employment insurance, we won't have anybody to do seasonal work, right? It could be fisheries that can only operate, like I'm thinking of the East Coast, a certain number of months of the year. And then what would you do? Like if you don't pay these people in the off season, but they won't bother to fish. But what they don't know is that in the old days, fishermen would recycle themselves as lumberjacks in the wintertime, mm -hmm. right? So they were always busy. They were just, you know, migrating from one job to the next, which is in many, many ways, much better than the system that we have today. Um, anyway, so th this is kind of, um, uh, you know, like I, I touch upon, um, well, another thing that would happen, of course, is that uh, salaries would go up in the off season, right? I mean, if you don't have enough, if you don't pay people, people, if you don't pay people enough, then you're gonna have to pay them more to attract them, right? So that, that's one thing. Um, unions in the old days, used to have their own unemployment schemes that they would administer themselves for the benefit of their members, right? And well, that's gone because the government basically interfered. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that I touch upon. Nice. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, the, the other one, the other one that I'm going to put up is, is to touch upon unfunded liabilities, but very, very focused on healthcare, 
because, you know, by now I have run five times for office, three times at the federal level, twice at the provincial level, and healthcare always comes up, right? It, it's, it's very important. And I, every single time I would tell them that we have a significant problem because um, at the country level, we have about $900 billion of unfunded liabilities for healthcare. That basically, to make it simple, it's $900 billion that should have been set aside to pay for the tsunami of the demographics that are very ugly. Like we have an aging population and we have baby boomers who in the 2030s and 40s are going to make a massive amount of demand on the healthcare system. And the, the tax revenues at that time will not be sufficient to pay for all these demands, right? So we needed over many decades to have put money aside which by now should be about $900 billion. But of course we have zero. So while I was warning people and of course being completely ignored, right? I mean, I got no traction, nobody cared, uh, very much an attitude of sticking, you know, your head in the sand and hoping that the problem is gonna go away. Well, guess what? I, it turns out that I might have been wrong by talking about the 2030s and 40s because we have a problem right now. Uh, the National Post has, ra has run a number of articles over the last month or so about healthcare, and it would be things like they would use uh, words like a broken system, a a system in shambles, a um, a bankrupt system, and I don't think any of this is overstated. I mean, COVID has certainly contributed to the delay of a number of procedures. Like in Ontario, where I live, there's a million surgeries in the on the backlog. I mean, that's an astonishing number. How long is it going to take for that to, to be dealt with? And, you know, there's an awful lot of people suffering as a result. My, my next-door neighbor, 9 to 12 months before he sees an orthopedic surgeon, because he's got a very bad hip that needs to be replaced. And he was told another nine to 12 months after he sees a surgeon in order to actually have the operation. So he's looking at 18 to 24 months of excruciating pain before it's gonna get done. And he's just one of thousands of, of Canadians who are, well, actually millions, right? I mean, million operation in Ontario alone. So we, we have such a massive problem and nobody um, is either aware or willing to, to do what's needed or to fix it. I mean, it, it's more important than ever that we open the doors to a private, a parallel private system to soak up some of the, um, the, the, the excesses so that um, you know, we can get somewhere. But it's, in this country, you bring that up, you get shouted down, you know, they immediately it's, it's funny because on healthcare, it appears that there's, there are only two countries on the entire planet, Canada and the US, because nobody seems to be willing to consider, say, a Swedish model or a British model or a French model in terms of how they do things. I mean, the, the, there are kinds of comparative studies that are, again, come out on a regular basis. Canada does not fare well at all, in spite of the fact that we have one of the most expensive systems in the world, 
right? One of the most expensive and the outcomes, like we're, we're way less than average in terms of outcome. I mean, that's, it's simply not possible. Yeah. As an aside, I, I heard something that was quite interesting from the ex-president of the OMA, a doctor by the name of Sean Watley, who pointed out that Germany has, sorry, Ontario has 10 times as many health administrators per capita as Germany does. 10 times. Hmm. Now, I'm all for Teutonic efficiency and how great the Germans are at this stuff, but my goodness, <laughs> they, they can't be 10 times as good as we are. I mean, you, you would think that the Ontario government, upon finding this out, would have sent a team to Germany to find out exactly how they do things. I mean, surely there's something to be learned. And I know that speaking to people, that the vast, vast majority of people don't really care when it's the actual practitioners, you know, whether it's the physicians or the nurses or the technician who get paid. But people, rightly so in my opinion, get pretty upset when they find out that there's a massive amount of dollars for healthcare that goes towards people who administer the stuff. I mean, we need some, but again, comparing Ontario to Germany, 10 to one ratio, something's wrong somewhere. Oh, well, there is for sure. I mean, if you look at a, if you look at the way any other business works and you have so many doctors and nurses uh, working in a certain area, I mean, you would have, you know, one, one administrator for however many actually actual people that are meeting with, uh, you know, actually doing the job, actually providing the health care, right? I yeah. mean, if you had, I mean, I think of uh, construction. I mean, for a team of, you know, a hundred guys, you have one, one kind of office administration person that sits there and shuffles paperwork around, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, it is crazy. And it's at the rate it keeps growing um, in terms of dollars being thrown at it. Like these, it's, it's one of the few things in the, you know, in the world where you, you know, you can, you can actually see the amount of money being spent on it grow exponentially and services continue to get worse and worse and worse. So that that really is just proof that this whole thing is collapsing under the weight of itself, and we're, and we're watching it in real time, right? Which reminds me, like another thing that, well, it's been on my, my radar for many, many years because I, I'm a bit of a geek that way. I would actually read uh, at least part of the report. But when the, the Auditor General for the federal government comes out on an annual basis with um, – her, her review. I mean, I don't know if you saw the one that came out two weeks ago, but it, it's the same old thing. It's, you know, the, the federal government has a program that in the end is going to be spending billions of dollars for the, the purpose of trying to reduce homelessness. I think their target was 50%, right? Once again, it, you know, it's the type of thing you say, oh my goodness, you know, what a laudable goal. Okay. But the Auditor General went to the departments, and there are four departments, I think, that get involved in this type of stuff. And they said, well, how are you doing against your stated goal? And the answer is, we don't know. We have no metric. Yeah. I mean, well. To, to me, that is such, you know, it's astonishing that the government 
always gets a pass like this, like that people go on the basis that for every dollar that they take from us by force through taxation, that we get a hundred cents worth of value. It cannot be the case. In fact, it cannot even be close to this, right? When, when a department has no metric to verify whether they are achieving their goal, what are the chances that they're actually achieving them? Close to zero. Oh, and sure. in fact, you have to wonder how much money gets wasted. It's, it's astonishing. I mean, only the government can get away with this type of behavior because a private company would get run out of business so quickly, you know, they wouldn't be around for, for very long. Well, that's right. Yeah. And I think there are, I mean, maybe not in Ontario, but I know in British Columbia, there are metrics as to how they've been doing fighting the homelessness problem and the amount of money they've spent on it. Uh, and it's almost like for every um, every time they double the amount of money they spend on solving the homelessness problem, there's twice as many homeless people, you know? It, it is close to that. I mean, it's things are getting worse and worse in, in, in BC, and they're spending more and more money on it, which, you know, again, as, uh, as fans of the Austrian school, we like to look at the type of incentives that are in place uh, for programs like that, and anything you subsidize, you will get more of, basically, right? Well, Tom Woods has a, a great, great chart that he's used many, many times, pointing out that by today's standard, the number of people who were poor in 1900 was about 95% of the population, mm -hmm. okay? And then, you know, he shows this graph where that number comes down by the 1930, uh, by the 1950s, it was down to 30%. By the mid-1960s, it was down to 15%. Now, what happened in the mid-60s, both in Canada and the U.S.? Well, we had the Great Society. I forget which country used that term. and But, but essentially, it was a massive rollout of government programs. Yeah. It was, that was Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson's term, I believe. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then in, in, in Canada, Trudeau had uh, Trudeau Senior had a different term, right? Yeah. So massive expansion of government programs to try to alleviate poverty. And what does Tom Woods show in his graph is that from that moment on, it actually started to go up again, right? To the point where today we're looking at eighteen or nineteen percent. Now, as he rightly asks, can you imagine if it had been reversed, right? That we had massive government programs that would have taken the rate of poverty from 95% down to 15 and suddenly we stopped and they start to inch away, you know, inch up again. Of course, people would be furious, but we have the opposite, right? Hardly any government improvement or, or, or intervention and it's coming down on its own, well, on its own, you know, through the free market and what have you. Mm -hmm. And the government starts getting involved and things actually start inching back up again you really have to ask yourself. I mean, you know, the, the common politician understands nothing about uh, moral hazard where you give people incentives to continue to act in a way that is uh, inappropriate. I mean, you know, we could have a whole po podcast about, you know, <laughs> poverty alleviation and how it should be done. But, you know, the, these types of, uh, of data really ought to make people wonder. And, you know, going back to my homeless and, a problem and the federal government that has no metric to verify whether these billions of dollars are being spent properly is shocking and totally unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, maybe we uh, 
Maybe the next time we get together, that should be our conversation, poverty alleviation. Uh, but I just remembered something. I believe, going back to our earlier conversation on the Emergencies Act inquiry, that I, th- I believe Trudeau is testifying today while we're recording this. Now, this, I won't release this till next week, but uh, if we get a chance, um, Throughout the throughout the weekend or early next week, maybe we should uh, just add a few comments to the end of this on uh, on what Trudeau had to say because I'm anticipating there'll be uh, uh, some, we'll get some good laughs out of that one. I agree. Although earlier this week I tweeted, you know, why bother asking him questions because we're guaranteed to get lies. Yeah, like I don't think we get the truth at all. It, it's it's going. To, I mean, he's, I suspect he's actually going to take a page from Freeland, which is, you know, a monologue on all kinds of stuff that's completely irrelevant, not answering the question, which he's become a master at. Although it's not, you know, not answering a question does not take a rocket scientist. I mean, you basically simply ignore it and, and talk about something else. Mm-hmm. But it's it's profoundly disrespectful. That That is something I've never, ever understood in terms of, say, the the Speaker of the House why they don't, you know, when a non-answer is given, because after all, right, I know that he, he likes to demonize um, people who who disagree with him. Um, but, like, we're not talking, again, sort of, oh, maybe in his mind it's fringe, but I mean, there are, there are millions and millions of Canadians who have a different opinion that they're entitled to. I mean, you know, I... I don't think much of NDP policies, but I think that someone who votes for the NDP is perfectly entitled to a decent, straightforward answer to a question, right? Again, I, I don't care much for Jagmeet Singh. I think that economically he's illiterate or whatever, but he's entitled to his opinion and he's entitled to an answer when he wants one. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not just, you know, towards libertarian or, or conservatives or whatever. I mean, anybody on the spectrum of political opinion, you know, ought to be treated with respect. And one of them is that if someone asks you a direct question, you give them a direct answer. Like the, these, these non-answers are completely unacceptable. And I wish the system was set up in such a way that the Speaker of the House would basically um, penalize in some form or another, like, you know, like you can be expulsed from the, the House of Commons if you swear or, you know, engage in non-parliamentary language. Not giving an answer to a direct question to me is non-parliamentary or unparliamentary. And you ought to be kicked out. But, you yeah. know, this has become so acceptable that someone asks you a question and you give an answer that is an answer to a different question. Yeah. It, it, to me, it's, it's disrespectful. Well, let's let, let's be uh, honest too. If they actually answered the question, they stand a very good chance of never get not only not getting elected again, but some of these questions potentially uh, going to jail for it. So, um, I don't. I don't. Yeah. I'm, it doesn't surprise me that they're they're changing the subject and, and skirting the questions. Okay, so I will grant you that you know. Most people don't want to go to jail, but can you imagine if, say with hindsight, or let's say his answer was, you know what, in hindsight, calling the Emergencies Act was, we were completely wrong, right? We panicked, um, I was freaking out, 
Um, and I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to call. I mean, it seems to me, now maybe I'm completely out to lunch, but it seems to me that you would actually get some points on, on the part of a lot of people, you know. I mean, it, it's astonishing when it comes to the government that they, they apparently, by their record, don't do anything wrong ever. Well, you know that can't be true. And I think it's a lot more honorable to say, you know what, I was wrong. I admit I was wrong. Again, this was new territory. We didn't know what we were doing. I mean, I, and I would actually have some, not complete, but I would have some sympathy for, you know, that type of, of response. Now, again, I think it was completely extreme and they were completely wrong, but I mean, it would be way better than him trying to either answer a different question than the one asked or to make up stuff or lie. But anyway, yeah. that's just me. Yeah, I know. I hear you. Hold on. Let me hit... Uh... Well, Jacques, we made it. We sat through, I don't know how much of the Justin Trudeau inquiries testimony you watched. I could only stomach so much of it. Uh, there's something about, there's something about hit like, I just can't stand his voice. I can't stand listening to him, um, you know, outside of his politics and stuff, which I also dislike. I, uh. I just can't stand the sound of his voice. I don't know what it is. Well, maybe it's the self-righteousness, the sanctimonious attitude, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what was what was your take on, uh, on his testimony? I have a few takes. Number one, because this is the one that maybe riles me more, more than anything else, is him under oath telling us that he never called unvaccinated people bad names. I mean, the the recording, this was, um, like, I'm wondering if he's trying to get away with it because he actually said that on a Quebec-based show, so it wasn't French, right? So I'm fluent, so, I mean, I, I know what he said, and that recording has made the rounds on all kinds of media. I mean, it, it's out there. So then it makes you wonder, First of all, he lies under oath. Number two, how can you possibly think that he's going to get away with it other than what I just described? Or I know that Max Bernier was saying that psychopaths, you know, they they lose sort of track of reality and, and maybe he's fooling himself into believing that he actually never said that. But anyway, to me, that was outrageous. Yeah. Another element is when the lawyer pinned him down and got him to admit that it is the threshold for ceases to obtain a, a wiretap warrant is higher, in his mind anyway, than the threshold for invoking the emergency act. Mm. And that just blew me away. I mean, my point is, how can it possibly be more difficult to get a wiretap warrant than to enact the, the, the act? I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Um, then there's this this whole like you know at one point he said that although he had not seen the police plan to evacuate um, or, or to remove the convoy, 
that he decided that it was not, I forget what his words were, but inadequate or it was not going to work, but he hadn't seen it. Mm -hmm. So again, how can you possibly think in those terms, right? You really ought to be able to read it first. And then he said repeatedly that we, we should just look at it only that, you know, the lawyer found out that so much of it was redacted that we couldn't read it. And when the lawyer asked that, that he redact, that, that he removes the redaction, then of course his lawyer, Trudeau's lawyer came to the rescue very quickly and saying that this was putting the prime minister in an odious position. So it's like the whole thing, I, I'm starting to get a really, really bad vibe because it seems to me that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that get invoked, like confidentiality, for example, uh, redactation of, of elements where, like, it's very difficult to ascertain mm-hmm. properly yeah. whether, you know, the act was enacted um, by meeting a certain threshold, because there's a lot of things that, you know, like it boils down to, from their point of view, like trust us. But I mean, trust us. I mean, the, the whole purpose of this inquiry is to make sure that it was it was done with proper reason. And if every time we ask a question, it's like, well, no, you can't see this, or, well, this is uh, client um, attorney privilege or um, cabinet confidentiality, whatever it is, right? I mean, they, they just, like, I don't know, the whole thing seems to me to be um, very, it, it doesn't smell. Nice. Let's put it that way. And and my final um, comment on on Trudeau is that, and and I've mentioned this many times, say on Twitter, but as soon as you get off the talking points, because clearly he was coached, he probably rehearsed. I mean, he's a sort of quasi actor, so he's capable of, of learning and memorizing lines. And with as long as it's within the purview of what he was prepared for. Right, he can recite them fairly well, but like people have commented, and I observed this, that it was sort of a night and day testimony on this part, because clearly the part that had been flagged ahead of time for which he was prepared, yeah, he came across reasonably well, but as soon as you went off script, I mean, he is totally inarticulate, completely unable to think on his feet. I mean, it's it's such a bad bad scene to see a prime minister who is so, I mean, it's like deer caught in headlight. It's a terrible, terrible, I mean, to me, it speaks to how unintelligent the man is. Yeah. I mean, really, un- I mean, he has to be coaches. I mean, it's a bit like a, a monkey who gets trained, right? I mean, they can do certain things and then you get off script, boom, they go to pieces. And, and that's what we saw. So not, not a good picture. And, you know, his supporters, Clearly, they use a threshold, as far as he's concerned, that is very, very low because they said, well, his performance was pretty good. But it's only pretty good on a relative basis where your expectations are so low that it doesn't take much to exceed them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if you can see my three-year-old just barged in here. He's jumping on the bed. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I like I say, I didn't watch the whole thing. We watched... Uh, like did you? Oh, I, I didn't watch. I didn't watch the five and a half hours either. Yeah, yeah, that would be crazy. Um, I so we watched uh, 
the part with Eva Ch- Chipiak, uh, mainly because my wife is friends with her. Um, so uh, oh. we uh, watched that. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. As far as, like, I, I totally agree with you in there's some something doesn't smell right. I mean, for me, it's it's starting to look like this whole thing was just for for show or just uh, just to whitewash the whole the whole episode of the of the Emergencies Act being invo- invoked and everything. But um, as far as his acting ability goes, you know, he is some sort of people always make fun of him for being some for being a drama teacher, which I understand doesn't give you the qualifications to be a prime minister um and then and then the other thing is when you're acting in real life that's really just called lying but uh i gotta i gotta tell you he's he's pretty good like yeah you know there were times when i was like man he's uh because you know he's lying about some of this stuff right it's so obvious and uh doesn't even you you would never you would never know if it actually wasn't all out there in the public and the fact that you know he is under oath and there's really nothing you know being he's not being called out on it at at the time it's uh it's difficult to believe that that this is this is going to go anywhere uh you know in, and my my great fear is that if Rouleau comes out and he's either saying yes they met the threshold everything was fine or he's even sort of tepid this opens the door. I mean, that's what frightens me, is that it's now going to de facto lower threshold in the future. And given the propensity that Trudeau has of being an authoritarian, you know, dictator-like, he will be emboldened if the judgment is that, oh, yeah, you met the threshold, because now he's going to start using it with impunity. That I mean, that's really my fear, mm-hmm. right? Because, let's face it, this is a man who demonizes his opponents all the time, has no time at all, in spite of his claims for embracing diversity, except when it comes to him, diversity of thought, of opinion, that is not welcome, right? I mean, we we all have to think the same thing that he does, of course. Um, so it's, it, to me, it's very, very dangerous. And, and I hope Rouleau is going to keep that in mind because you don't want to give this government a pass and invite them to use it in the future. You know, we were discussing earlier about these um, digital currencies and and starting telling people, controlling their lives. And and, I mean, this is the type of thing that Trudeau would love, you know, if he's in power to do so. So that's a great fear. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Anything else you wanted to say on it? No, I mean, it's it's. In general, quite disappointing. I mean, it's it's now concluded. I didn't know that the next phase is that Rouleau, I think, has reached out to 50 so-called experts to help him navigate all the testimony. I mean, clearly, um, at least it gives us the impression that a lot of work is going to go into this. Again, I hope it's the case. I hope that um, he's going to do what is right. Um, but I'm, I'm not optimistic. Yeah, no, I'm not either. I'm not either. At this point, all I can do is laugh. Um, But anyway, thanks for making the time this morning, Jacques, and we'll talk soon. Very good. Thank you. Take care. 
That was Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. Check them out at libertarian.ca. And if you like the Darcy Drill podcast, subscribe on Substack. <laughs>